please welcome Horatio Clough. Thank you, Patrick, uh, very much. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming on this beautiful Sunday. Uh, I don't think I would have made it. I'm very touched that you did. Uh, I'll keep it tight so there will be lunch uh, before too long. Um, so, yes, I'm going to talk to you about, um, ostensibly, about icebreaking uh, in Finland. Um, you know, why you turn up for that, because it's a mystery <laughs> thing. Um, uh, and it came as a surprise to me. And it begins, it's a story of, uh, it begins in death. Uh, and it moves, I hope, towards light. Uh, so what happened was, uh, I was at home in Yorkshire, in a crack in the moors, uh, moaning and bewailing my lot, which is how I spend a lot of my time. And in fact, I've written a book about it called The Light in the Dark, which is the one that Patrick referred to. Um, and I got a phone call from the Finnish embassy. And it's a boy I was at school with. And he says, it's 100 years of Finland. Uh, we can't get any British journalists or writers to show any interest. Uh, newspapers just won't cover it. Would you like to come and travel on a government icebreaker? You don't need a commission. We think that something will come of it. Uh, so I said, sure. But the eerie thing was that it was a legacy of a guy called Thomas Schmidt who died. And Thomas is one of these people who sort of refuses to die. And we'd been at school together, and we'd been on a lifeboat crew together. And so had Pekka in the embassy, so that's how we were linked. And Thomas died absurdly young in a skiing accident. And he'd sort of solved the problem of life by the you know, early 30s. He had a wonderful family, wonderful job, made the money, and was trying to do good things. And um, his legacy has been astonishing. And what was strange was uh, he was in a coma at the same time as my son was born. And little Aubrey was, you know, when babies are born, they can't focus initially. And he's, he's sort of coming into being and into seeing. And at the same time, Thomas is slipping away. And I felt that in some way they were passing each other, because I used to talk to this little baby about my friend and how I was worried about him. Uh, and I was writing to Thomas, because I was hoping that you know, that was a way of, uh, maybe he would, would come out and, and be able to read it, about this boy coming in. And it felt to me as though they passed each other in some corridor between life and death. And what was really eerie was that when Aubrey's eyes came into focus, like two little blue gun barrels, it was Thomas looking out at me. And of course, you see projection and all those sorts of things. But I said to Pekka, it's amazing the effect he keeps having. And he said, yeah. And so there's a, there, a friend of mine builds lifeboats um, and puts them in 40-foot shipping containers. And that's a lifeboat in a box. And he sends them to places where there are no lifeboats. So the coast of Japan didn't have a lifeboat service. Somalia doesn't have a lifeboat service, or they didn't until Robin sent them one of these speedboats. I said, what do you think they're going to do with him, Rob? You know, this thing can go anywhere, catch any ship. And he said, well, it doesn't matter, because they can never say they don't have a lifeboat. Um, and anyway, so Thomas, and one of them is called the Thomas Schmidt. And so it was kind of his spirit that sent me north, in a way. Um, and I went to Finland not knowing much about it, except that 100 years ago, so it's 717, the overspill of the Russian Revolution, um, reds, whites, there's a vicious civil war in Finland. Uh, horrendous. And there's a lot in this book, a bit about Finnish silence, because the Finns regard silence as a means of communication. You can have, it's not a pause in conversation, it's a continuation of, and there are different kinds of silence. But the great silence of them all in Finland is the silence about the Civil War, uh, because its legacy runs very deep. And when I was digging into it, I found the thing that really hit me was that a hundred years ago, there, was a, there were references of terrible mistreatment of orphaned red children by the victorious whites. And I thought, how much do you have to hate somebody to mistreat the children of the parents that you've killed? Uh, and yet, 100 years later, Finnish children report themselves the happiest, least worried, and most balanced in the world. And there seemed to be in Finland some message of deep hope. And, and I'm a writer who, who I, I, I look for hope and wonder. Um, and Finland, in some ways, as a nation, embodies these things, because it hasn't been easy, but they have built this incredible functioning society. Um, and the way I came to it was cruising up and down in the dark and horizontal blizzards in minus 20 with these very taciturn, initially Finnish sailors. And I thought there would be problems here because at sea, the language of the sea is English, so Filipinos and Dutch and Indians all meet in English, which is easy for an English language writer. Uh, quite different in Finnish because obviously they had to switch to English for my benefit. And so I spent a lot of time doing what I do, which is basically hang around nearby uh, taking notes or taking mental notes. Uh, but gradually, gradually, they, they unfolded. Um, and by the end of it, I, I felt that I'd, I'd got to them and got near them. And so the book, um, very simply, really, is the story of 
how they keep Finland running in the winter. And it's the so we're in the Gulf of Bothnia, the Bay of Bothnia, which is that armpit between Finland and Sweden. Uh, and it's dark and it's frozen from about December through to May. Um, and I thought it would be things like shoes and food, which is what container ships do and everything else. But it isn't. It's coal, it's zinc, it's wind turbines, it's power, energy, light. It's the absolute basic fundamentals of society that keep the thing running. And so you've got about 10 ports around the Gulf and you've got 10 icebreakers, and you would think that was pretty straightforward. And so they thought, well, we know, we'll assign an AI, because Finland are very high tech, thanks to Nokia. Uh, we'll assign an AI just to assign the icebreakers. And the AI had a breakdown uh, and was had to be sent home, um, had to lie down, because it couldn't do it. Because the thing about ice is, completely unpredictable. You know, you can smash it, but that's basically all you can do with it. You can't tell where it's going to move, or how much it's going to stick, or uh, if you break a fair way through it, you know, what will happen in an hour's time when the wind moves the whole pack and this apparently safe channel then takes you into deadly danger. Uh, and the rule of thumb that the icebreakers use is if the ship isn't in danger of crashing into you, the one you're leading, then you're too far away and it will stick. So it's a dangerous job and it's a crown state company and Finland still very much believes in, in, sta in the state. So Finnish airlines, Finnish airports, so much of it is majority state controlled. And they were very proud of, of their role and they are an elite because uh, it's dangerous and difficult work. And it was like being uh, on another planet. The only travel writing job I wouldn't take would be the one where they say, the F can I write for the FT, would you like to go you know, with Virgin to, into space? I will say no, because the idea of just being off the planet is too much for me. But I know what it'll be like, a bit what it'll be like, and it'll be like the Gulf of Bothnia at four in the morning, when you've got a Russian ship and it's stuck fast in ice, and you come up on it, and it looks like it's on the bottom of an evaporated sea, kind of stuck in gleaming salt. And you go charging up, and the, an icebreaker is like a sawn-off ferry. She's all bulk. And you go by it very, very close. They have a stick that sticks out the side, literally a stick. And they've broken the stick by you know, going so close in. So you go in close and fast, and you go round it. And the wash and smash of your wake breaks her free. And then she puts on her full power and follows you close behind. And it's all quite exciting, particularly when the crew that you're rescuing are exhausted, you know, small coasting container ships. They're knackered, they haven't eaten, they haven't slept, they're late, there's a Russian captain, he's panicking. Finland comes charging out of the night, all of its searchlights on, and they absolutely love it. They're so kind of macho quietly. Round they go, smash her free, full power and follow my track. And then they go, they say things like, turn on your searchlight, and are you really on full power? And you can hear the Russians say, and they're like, well done. And then they, we, we took her, and we, we'd take her all the way in. And then the Finns would do these extraordinary maneuvers in horrendous wind and darkness, and, and then they'd break a passage right inside. And at the same time, you know, the Russian government has been buying up empty spaces near Finnish airfields and military bases. So they had to pass legislation to stop that. And they were talking about the little green men that you saw in Ukraine quite openly. You know, it's an issue for them, because Finland sits in this extraordinary fault line between East and West. And for years, they annoyed both sides by not committing fully to the other. Um, but it all comes back to the civil war. So what you get is this horrendous war uh, in which, you know, we all know civil wars are the worst, no quarter asked or given. And then uh, the whites win it under this guy called Manaheim, who's still known as the white devil in, in the red cities, uh, the industrial cities. Uh, and in theory, that's a divided nation forever. But then, of course, Stalin's uh, overwhelming military machine attacks Finland. Manaheim has been warning against this, and they bring him out of retirement four days after they finally let him take it and say, please save Finland. And he does it, basically. They fight the Russians to a standstill in the Winter War. And the way they did it was educative in that the Soviet army was arranged in these pyramids of obedience and fear. And uh, the Finns all called each other by their first names and operated in quite small groups and were much more adept at winter warfare. Uh, the rule number one of which is if you're on skis, don't throw a grenade in front of you. You know, it's that sort of thing. <laughs> and they realized that, it, you know, the army marches on its stomach and the Soviets were very cold at night, so they shared sleeping bags and they, their soup kitchens were absolutely fundamental to their progress. So in very small groups, the Finns would attack the soup kitchens and then they would go through at night in their white suits, cutting every second throat so that you wake up next to your buddy and he's not awake. Uh, and it was tremendously effective. And they invent the Molotov cocktail. So with a bottle of petrol, you can defeat a tank. 
um, only being the Finns, all the bottles were stamped for the name of the factory where they were manufactured, <laughs> uh, which got bombed, obviously. Um, but it, in that wonderful, uh, extraordinary and terrifying resistance, um, the, the nation solidifies, it solders itself together. So it was what the Italians were trying to do in their lunatic entry into the First World War, the idea of soldering a nation together in blood and fire, this lunatic denunzio's idea. But in Finland, it actually works. So when they come out of it, they've got uh, a kind of ground zero. And it's a massively agricultural nation, and they all come funneling into the cities. And um, what's astonishing about Finland is gender equality. If you're running a farm in the middle of nowhere, there's no way the wife can be the second-class citizen. It's like a Welsh hill farm. They're joint captains. You know, there's no way around it. So when the wonderful Ethel Brilliana Tweedy in 1898, she loses her husband, her lover, uh, and her best friend in the space of about a week. She's left destitute and she's got kids. And so she decides to become a travel writer. Uh, uh, you wouldn't do that now. And she sets off um, to Finland and she reports back. The first thing she sees when she arrives there is Finnish women working on building sites. And so part of the secret of the nation's success has been, has been equality. Um, and so they, they come into cities and they start, okay, how do we build a modern nation? Uh, and they use the icebreakers. They didn't have a navy, really. So uh, Mannerheim goes to Sweden and he wins the Orland Islands and he establishes Finland as a nation among nations. Um, and so then they go to the doctors and they say, so how do we do the hospitals? And the doctors say, well, we, we have these total care centres and we have them in every major city and we do everything uh, from you know, dentistry through to palliative care in these centres, and they were quite radical young doctors, and so the Finns built it, and it worked. Um, education, you know, we, those of you who are parents, grandparents, you'll know that you'll have heard that Finnish education is the most successful in the world. Uh, how is it done? Well, they don't force them, they don't test them, they assess them. They make it very, very hard to become a teacher, so it's very desirable, you're very well paid, and you're very high status, and it's difficult to get in. So by the time the child is six, when they start teaching them um, reading and writing, they, they've had, the mother has had the option on care or schooling, uh, so the home environment is quite relaxed. And it came home to me where my captain, Tem, who's a young man, looked so unlike a sea captain, it was ridiculous, he wore kind of mint green trainers. Uh, he was younger than me, and he's the old man of the ship. And I said, what's schooling like for your daughter, Tem? And he said, well, she has a teacher who is Japanese for maths and the teacher doesn't speak any Finnish. So they communicate in maths. And you just thought, God, I wish my kid was getting that, you know. Because this is a smart girl from Japan who's realized this is the place to be to be a teacher. Um, and so that was kind of my, the image I held, that that's how you do it. Um, and it's tremendously successful society in, in many ways. And the great sort of story of Finland, if it was forged by Mannerheim, it, was, it survived because of Nokia. Uh, and Nokia was the story of, of success. They were, selling more, they were selling all the mobile phones in the world pretty well at one point. Uh, and the way they did that was fascinating too, because it was modular. So they set their little, it was just full of teams, small teams working together, the same model as the army. So you're not in a great corporate structure. Um, and when it all went down, Nokia had paid their taxes. So the nation had this sovereign wealth uh, that it kept. And they had this uh, expertise and this kind of culture of self-determination and experimentation. And so now, Finland, post-Nokia, highly, highly successful in Ulu, they're doing 5G, uh, and they're really teched up. In fact, we were out, you know, in the middle of the ice, and we all had 5G, it was like, Jesus. Um, so, very successful like that, too. And there's a kind of logic and a decency, and you get um, free education to PhD level. Um, so when you're walking through Helsinki at night, and there's a drink ash issue, um, which has a cultural uh, reason for it, but you know, there's a very, very pissed man in black talking to a bouncer who's also in black. And there's a, they're not fighting, because they've probably both got PhDs, you know. <laughs> so there's a kind of conversation ongoing. And the, the elder generation worry that the younger feel entitled and that they're over-educated and kind of under, uh, um, what would you say, under-resourceful in a way. They've had too, had too much too easy. But perhaps that's a, a story of, of the world at the moment, or some parts of it. Um, and all this came through to me in kind of dribs and drabs as I sailed through the ice um, with the Finns. Uh, but it didn't start very easily, so I'm going to give you a, a break from my nattering voice, and I'll just read you this little bit about silence. So we're on the icebreaker, we're in the middle of nowhere, and when you're working, it's thump, shatter, bang, 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 as she smashes her way through. And the way an icebreaker works is that she pushes herself up onto the ice and the weight of her breaks through it. And that's all very well until you hit, like, second or third year ice 
because that's the blue-green stuff, which is rock hard. If you hit that, you'll just bounce off, and then at that point, the ship behind you goes into the stern of you. And in fact, we had a massive crack in the stern where exactly this had happened. But um, there wasn't a problem where we were because it was, although it was deep winter, the ice was only 20, 30 centimetres thick. So she's fine. And they're always desperate for work, you know. And in fact, there were 10 icebreakers, and one of them was Swedish, on loan from the Swedish government, and they kept not giving her any work because the Finns are, you know, they were ruled by Sweden for 500 years, and so they loved to diss the Swedes. Uh, and so they, she, they go, have we any work? No. And they, they ha, ha, ha. Uh, so... After dinner, I joined Penty in the smoking room. The smoking room is a steel box accessed from the main deck, a stinking coffin decorated with Playboy calendars dating back to 2010, each displaying a winter month with all the days neatly crossed out. So this is the art gallery? Yes. Have you been a cook on ships for a long time? All my life. Would you ever cook on land? No. Why not? Why not? What's it like cooking on a ship? It's okay. He's very shy and it's not fair to interrogate him. Let me let him finish his cigar in peace. Let's try this guy instead. Hello, I'm Horatio. Hey. What's your name? Mumble. Sounds like uni. May I ask what you do? Hey. What do you do? Engineer. Ah, right. So what did you do today? Pained look. Pause. Some little bit. <laughs> and what will you do tomorrow? Agonised look. Hand to head. I don't know. <laughs> right. I'd expected this. Sometimes I will meet men who do not have much English, who are shy, have a famous Finnish reserve. This is the Finnish silence. They are famous. They come in different grades. There are relaxed silences, companionable, puzzled, contented, unhappy, charged and thoughtful silences, even lyrical silences. I will join uni in a thoughtful silence. He stares at the steel bulkhead, which is good, given the alternatives are Heather's bum or Kyra's boobs. The bulkhead is pale yellow. Painted like that or nicotined over? Practice. A finished silence is just a question of practice. I can do this. Uni is rubbing his jaw as if he has toothache. We can do this. We are in heavier ice now, the ship grating and vibrating. Uni has half of his cigarette left. He is greyed and lined by cigarettes, as I will be if I do not quit. I'm doing this wrong. I'm eating his silence. We can both feel it. No, worse, I'm listening to his silence. Of course. How can you hope to share a silence if one of you is eavesdropping on the other? Quickly, I must listen to my own silence. Crash, thump, scrape, gripe, goes the ice along the hull. And then if I can hear mine and he his, might we then begin to hear, to share? Clash, clash, great. Something, this is hopeless, something just whimpered. Was it Uni? Was it me? The women on the wall are laughing. Bye, have a good evening. Oomph, says Uni. I desperately want to apologise. <laughs> that was kind of how it started. Um, but then as we got further on, they, they talked, uh, and uh, my method is to just explain myself. And they were very used to having journalists aboard, so I had to get through all that. Um, but it became um, quite dark and strange um, because of what we were doing. So there's a great big ship, and she's full of coal, uh, and they're shifting coal out to her. No, they're shifting, it was Russian coal, so they're shifting coal out to her, so she's going to take it away. Uh, and then there's all the zinc and stuff, and you realise... Every time we start the engine, there's this massive kind of worm of black smoke. And the Finns are very funny about it, you know, because we're talking about sea level rise. And so they know, because as the ice melts, the land that it's been holding down will rise. So if you're near the poles, you're laughing, actually. So Finland will go up at the same time that the sea is going to go up. And of course, because of the Cold War, uh, the American strategy in the Cold War, which they were very frank about, was to nuke central and southern, well, central Finland, to stop the Russians who were going to be dashing across Finland in order to get to Norway. Uh, and the Russians were clear on this too, and both sides had tactical nuclear weapons. And in fact, the American uh, naval attaché did a tour of Finland photographing targets, basically, junctions, roads, bridges, and the Finns had to throw him out, and the Americans replaced him with somebody who continued the same work. And so the Finnish response was to build nuclear shelters. So every building over a certain size has a nuclear shelter in the bottom, and they use them to store bikes in, but they have to be clear in 72 hours and they're drilled on it, and everybody's got to have a box, a long-term survival box. And I said to uh, the second mate, lovely boy, Sampo, you know, where's your nearest? He said, it's my daughter's school, it's 300 yards away. So they're kind of future-proofed, in a way, the Finns. They don't have that much to worry about. But climate change obviously changes it for all of us. So here we are, smashing ice, taking kind of carbon fuel through it, conniving, it seemed to me, on our own destruction. Uh, and we started talking about it, and you know, they're talking about the, it, it becoming ice-free by 2020, 2030. Um, and there's a wonderful and very terrifying book called A Farewell to Ice by Peter Wadhams, who is the world authority on sea ice. And the climate thing that they're modelling is that it's not the ice themselves 
that worries them entirely, because that's the albedo effect, which I'll come on to. But it's the ice that was laid down at the end of the last ice age on the seabed. And if that stuff melts, then you get methane plumes. And then you get fast feedback. And then you get the apocalypse really, really quickly, across the middle of the world particularly. So Africa, Asia, and the central United States. And you're already seeing very dramatic weather there. Uh, and the, the, obviously, even the BBC have accepted that it's no coincidence and doesn't have to be balanced. Um, but it's sort of a question becomes, you know, wh what are we going to do about it? And they are like, well, if you work on a ship, you might as well just run your engine on your 4 by 4 all year. It's going to make no difference. And this sort of slightly um, chaotic end of days thinking, I felt. Um, but the albedo is amazing. Uh, and you all know it. Actually, down here, I don't know how much snow you get. But if you go outside um, on a snowy day, what you get is radiation. About 90% of the radiation is bouncing straight back up off the snow. As the snow melts, then you get, instead of uh, white ice reflecting light, you get black water absorbing light. And at that stage, obviously, it's, everything starts melting. And you get what we call radiation forcing. So at a certain point, it won't matter what we do, because just the light from the sun, unreflected by the albedo, will start to melt and heat us. Um, and so we, every now and then, we would stop and park up and go out um, on, onto the ice. And it was amazing. And we always took a drone so that we could pretend we were working. Because obviously, we're men. You know, we, we can't be not doing anything. Uh, and so we would send this drone around to get endless publicity shots of our wonderful ship sitting in the ice. Um, but really, you just wanted to run and play and, and to sort of make snow angels and stuff. Um, and to save you the bother of buying this tome, I will just read you um, the kind of the climax. Because there was something about it, um, about it seemed to be to be a little model of how humans are and how we are in terms of the planet. So I'm on my way home. So from Aulu to Helsinki to the late pulsing streets of London to the last train and finally home, I bought a souvenir of the voyage in a double feeling which has been settling and crystallising as I've written its story. There is Otso's mighty bow. So part of the construction of Finland is a story and it's the Kalevala this extraordinary pre-Christian epic, which was discovered in the minds of fishermen who could recite for three days without a slip. And they said, you should submit my grandmother. You know, she could do it for five. Um, and it's about 1898, and actually earlier, 35, Elias Lonrot, who's sent out uh, to be a teacher out in the, in the, uh, and doctor out in the wilderness and starts collecting these stories, and actually quite a lot of them were doing it. And then they write it down, and then they condense it into the Kalevala, and suddenly they've got this national epic and it's basically a kind of male, where well, it is a male hero figure, Vinamoinen, and he's against the dark witches of the north, of the feminine principle, and they're warring effectively over a thing called the Sampo, which is like a mill that grinds out gold and salt and drives anyone mad who hasn't got it and fills with power and light anyone who has. Uh, and in one version, they fight over it, and it ends up in the sea, smashed, grinding out the salt that makes the sea. Uh, and so Otso is the bear figure from it, and so we're named after Otso, and if you go to Finland, Things like Sampo and Otso and Vainamoinen are everywhere. But it's important because obviously they had to construct. So after the five centuries of Swedish rule, you get the century of Russian domination. And they're a duchy, a grand duchy. So that meant that they were making effectively their own laws. And they would speak straight to the Tsar, who they called the good Tsar. And they didn't have to go through all the kind of uh, the, the, the Russian colonial kind of thing. So they get to invent in some ways their own country, but they need their own culture. And this wonderful Kalevala becomes that. And Sibelius writes his music from it. And between them, they more or less construct the Finnish cultural identity. Um, and obviously, if you ask the seafarers, not one of them had read it, but they'd all been forced to read bits of it in, in school, so they had mixed feelings towards it. Anyway, the, the, so we're on a ship named after the bear, Otso. There is Otso's mighty bow thrusting forward over the ice, which is snowed and jumbled on the surface, consolidated pack stretching away beyond the searchlights. And there is a sickle of a crack running forward, curving away from the ship, shooting out more shatter lines, Every splinter evidence of our power and efficacy. How mighty is our roaring attack. The decks shudder, the impacts grate and crash, and the pack splits, barely hindering our charge. The confrontation is never an equal contest. Our purpose was destruction, but there was no benefit to us in final victory. All the while we wished the weather colder. We wished that war ice would form. Though the crew relished rest and abeyance of the juddering contact, something in us, which was explicit in my friends, also longed for our opponent to offer more defiance. This double impulse seemed a portrait in miniature of a particular relationship with nature and the earth. The more deeply buried its treasures, 
the vaster its oceans and the more mighty its resistance, the greater the invention and resolution Earth has drawn from us. From the Pliocene until now, until this fractional instant of geological time, Earth has been matchless. But now, suddenly, its opposition is wilting. The planet threatens to become soggy, tempestuous and backward as the ghost climates of older worlds are disinterred and loosed again. Perhaps this partly explains our ongoing rapacity, our ever more frenzied extraction and the feebleness of our plans for change. It's as if we are disappointed in the Earth, like adolescents struggling to accept a parent's vulnerability. Can it really be so sensitive? Is the ice so thin? It seems to be harder for humankind to nurse a wounded opponent than to battle one still vigorous. But it is touching and revealing that even icebreakers practice conservation. According to Thames' report of the Kemi Tornio Fairway, so pristine ice is husbanded there. They don't smash it up, they keep an unbroken lane which can be used at the season's end so they're not trapped in kind of smashed ice balls of their own making. And then there was the heaven, the brightest spell I will remember from the Bay of Bothnia, the privilege and amazement of standing on the sea. A spiral of scribbles on the page of the bay, the plot of our voyage, could have belonged to salvagers or treasure hunters searching for the sampo of the Kalevala, the miraculous world-making mill. We seemed to find it that sparkling day when we stepped from the ship onto ice in a storm of light. The discovery that the sea really was made solid gave me a fizzing exhilaration. I jumped on the ice as if to test it, trying to land lightly, laughing with delight. It was familiar, if it was familiar to the crew, it was a miracle to me that all the air was scintillant, that the horizon was a weld flash of ice and sky, that distance could only be measured in colour until colour dissolved into glare. Our little suited figures were snow gobs, laughable and laughing. Light poured down and up at once. In the silent vortex of the albedo, I felt a mingling of calm and wonder, as if all superfluity had been whipped away. While standing on a mountaintop grants you the vista of a scoop of space, from valley bottom to cloud level and beyond. Standing on the sea under clear air erases depth and height. The sky begins in the snow under your boots. You are simultaneously huge and as tiny as a fleck. The stillness of the air held a charge in it, for nothing around us was stable. Between the sun and the frigid air, creation and destruction were in whirling play. On the underside of the ice below us, congelation growth thickened the crystal layers, while in the ridges of our footprints, radiation tickled them minutely away. Although you could not hear it or see it, you could not help but sense it, a molecular dance, a duel, an effervescence at the edge of perception, the making and melting of ice. So that's how the book ends. Thank you. Uh, and so I'll just say a little more before I ask for um, help, um, which is about leadership, really. So if you've got... A, it, was, it was the first ship I'd been on where women were an active part of it, and sure, it, again, in kind of historically subordinate positions, although the chef on a, on a ship is a very important person because uh, the captain is one pillar, the chief engineer is the other, and the crew on both sides are, you know, increasingly lowly. But in the galley messages are passed to and fro because the chef is the one person the captain can't tell what to do you know and they speak as equals because he relies on him or her and we had a, a, a female, female chef who had no English and we, we kind of I, I thanked her profusely after every meal and went away furious I couldn't ask her proper questions and there was a cadet uh, who was tremendously good fun uh, blonde she said I you know and, and kind of young and voracious she's like I love all the attention I love working with men it's fantastic uh, and um, she was fun and there was a sense of uh, enjoyment and joy that they gave. Just you know, a tiny little minority, but I think this was in, in some ways almost a normal place because on a container ship at sea for three months when you don't see women except on the halting internet, it's a very different environment. And I'm fascinated by men in these situations and in all situations. And uh, you know, what is a good man, what is a strong one, and what is a good leader? And so Tem in his mint green trainers, um, his method of... So they have a thing called Sisu, and Sisu is how they beat the Russians, and Sisu is how they survive the Finnish winter, and Sisu is how Finland is mighty in, in, in ways that it is, and Sisu is a dogged refusal, a bloody-minded refusal to be beaten. And I said to Tem, you know, how do you interpret Sisu, Tem? And he said, chin on chest and head to the next disappointment. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> and his entire mode of leadership was that. It was like, I'm so useless, I have messed up again. You know, <laughs> we went to the Arctic, everyone went swimming, I caught a cold, it was only me. You know, and, and then nobody else wants to be coordinating captain for the 10 icebreakers and take the AI's impossible job. Because, you know, the ship can stick at any point uh, or she can set free. Uh, you can never tell where the ice is going to go. So, in fact, I said, how do you do it, Tim? And he said, uh, we wait for chaos and then we sort it. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we did. And at one point, there were three, you know, I, we're leading a ship northbound. Somebody else is leading a ship southbound. There are two ships stuck and two icebreakers standing off and the Swede plaintively asking for work and not being answered. And, and they just gently sorted it all out. Um, but Tim would, you know, so I always take it on. You know, he, he liked the coordinating captain role. Uh, and he was just the most brilliant leader. And it was all self-deprecation, uh, endless sort of um, apparent hopelessness. And then I caught him once properly at work. And they were on the bridge, all the key staff, all the officers, and they're, sit, they're standing round. And Thames had them fixing up little like GoPros, basically, all round the bridge, just to give everyone something to do. You know, and they're all happy, tinkering away. And then they stop, and Thames starts talking. He's talking very quietly, and he's looking at everybody's eyes. And you can see these much older men beaming in on him. And absolutely, he had them. He could, they would have followed him anywhere. It was wonderful. And he was actually very interested in kind of leadership science. And I thought that mixture of competence and lack of ego, how wonderful and how, you know, we just don't see it much. I was talking to Stephen about how in our political class, wouldn't it be amazing if there were people who were really good at it, who weren't doing it for their name in lights and Twitter. Uh, and it's that kind of thing that I, I, I find fascinating and inspiring about um, the way the world actually works. And of course, luckily, we've got civil servants, we hope, and uh, spooks and journalists who hopefully are those people. And, uh, you know, we may yet survive Brexit, but as they said, you're going to need Sisu. And I, yeah. <laughs> We're all going to need it. Um, and then when we got off the ship, he comes out and he's got a matching lime green suitcase, which is very practical, actually. Because <laughs> on you know, a, a roundabout, a, a carousel, you'll pick yours out straight away. And there's his wife. And I was fascinated. They took me out to lunch. And I thought, how will it be? And she'd been on ships, too. And I said, how did you meet? And they, they were on a row row to Middlesbrough. Uh, and that was all they saw of Britain. I was like, what do you think of Middlesbrough? Like, it was shit, you know? Uh, but I love it because he took her out for a curry and that's where he... And, and she said, do you remember what we had? And this is the when he'd asked her. He proposed, basically. And you could see him bluffing like mad. And I was thinking, you weren't thinking about the food. You know, it wasn't fair of her to ask you that question. But um, they get off and so they embrace. And she's been running, if you think about it, she's been running the kids, her job, everything, the homestead while he's away for weeks on end. Um, and again, very good conditions for a seafarer, very well paid, very well pensioned, fantastic health insurance, uh, all the stuff they say they wouldn't do it if they didn't have it. And it was just that quick kiss on the cheek, and it was like watching two generals meeting, you know, uh, as well as uh, two people very much in love, and then they were on, and there was nothing, no how was it, all this kind of thing. And I asked him about parenthood, and he said, well, he was going to get his kids aboard, but he was worried they were going to be bored, and his daughter had got, was now cross with him at the age of 10, that he was away all the time. And it's... You know, that's the way the world is, and every profession, or a lot of them, seem to be getting harder and requiring more distance, more loneliness, more isolation, more mediated electronic contact. Um, but it was mighty. Um, and, yeah, I think that we, we've, there's probably quite a lot to learn from Finland about how you can have a, have a big state that, that, that isn't a controlling state and how you can have individualism and equality um, I was very inspired by it, and so it was a PR trip, you know, and as a journalist, I'm very sceptical of these things, but actually I was honoured to be a, a guest of the Finnish government, um, and, and it did change me slightly, um, and certainly in regard to, to climate change. Um, I felt that uh, as, as a race, you know, as a species, we can do anything, but we haven't yet really started to do it. So I guess in the end that's the... And the thing of the reference to the Pliocene age is that if you look at it, sea level would have been at the top of... Otso's mast, you know, back then. And the climate was hot and stormy and tempestuous. And I was in this uh, cabin, and so I went through all the drawers, obviously, and there, was, there were old copies of Time, you know, from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> and there was a piece by um, Leakey, Mary Leakey, about the first hominids going down to the water to drink, that little family group, and how agriculture wouldn't have worked then because the climate was too tempestuous and, 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 and varied. Um, and it was as if these kind of ghost climates are being disinterred. But ice is extraordinary, you know. Um, it's, again, it's Peter Wadhams' book, but it gives the stars their twinkle. Um, you know, the, some, it has been theorised that they're responsible for life on Earth. And it's amazing because, um, as far as I understand it, water is amazing, which is what makes ice amazing. And it's highly, highly mutable in different states. Um, but they think ice may have covered the whole planet two or three times, pretty well down to the equator. 
Um, so it was this experience of time. Ice is very interesting in, in terms of time. Um, and out there, the one frightening thing was towards the end, and, and Tacitus talks about it. Uh, he, he, at the end of the world, there's this pigrum, molten, this dark uh, kind of molten sea of nothingness. And he'd obviously had a report, and he'd written it down. And there was this one day where we were traveling through gray and black, and there wasn't much ice around, and everything felt slightly out of joint. And there were no birds or animals for the whole week. And it's perfectly natural, and the whole thing was frozen. But it was a little glimpse of an Earth without moving, without, without moving creatures. And the point about a bird is that in a field, you know, the bird is the final flourish of, of living existence of time now, of time in life now. And without that, your, the existential loneliness is absolutely crushing. And I felt this rush of, because I'm seasonally affected, which is what the next book is about, really. It really is moaning about the dark in Yorkshire. Um, <laughs> but it's that, and that without them, you know, it won't be worth living, because there'll be nothing else. You know, a buzzard on a post regards us as a lower form of being, you know, and we need that, I think. So thank you very much for your time. Horatio, I want to say that I think you owe it to us all to go into politics. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, with my record of mental health and juvenile crime, it's completely out of place. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I had hopes for Rory Stewart, actually. He had that great line, somebody said, you know, uh, he said, you think someone's in charge of Britain? There's no one in charge of Britain. fascinated by, well, a Finland, because I've been to Russia, to St. Petersburg, so mm. obviously Finland's quite close. And um, there was a good uh, book of the week the other day about a Russian spy being uh, secreted out of Russia into Finland, oh. I think in the boot of a car, and it really happened I think I some time ago. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to meet our Finnish ambassador, who was there for many, many years, um, on a, on a trip I was on and he had some fascinating stories. He'd married a Finnish lady and was the, our British ambassador in Finland mm. and he had some really, really good stories about being <laughs> in that role. But I've been lucky enough last year to travel to the Canadian High Arctic going through the Northwest Passage and I didn't realise how much ice there was up there mm -hmm. and we actually had to come down Peel Sound mm. um, which was iced up and my and, and sleeping in a ship, an ice, a Russian icebreaker that was going through ice, that the noise was amazing. I don't know if you, you, you obviously heard the noise of yeah. the ice against the ship. Yeah, the Russians are fascinating. Quite on unnerving, actually. I didn't realize that it could be unnerving, but it's almost, oh, is it going to break any minute? It's exactly the noise that no seafarer wants to hear, except yeah. for icebreakers, yeah. yeah. And then we had to have a Russia, um, we had to have the Canadian icebreakers cut us through the Bellot Strait to get through. And that was fascinating. Oh, we watched it and we followed them through. So hearing your, your book, I've got to go and buy it. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the Russians have a different theory of moving ships. They grope them all together. They put a couple of uh, massive icebreakers out front, nuclear powered, and they move the whole lot like a flotilla <laughs> of ducks. But the problem with that is that when you get to the port, everyone's got to wait for them to go in. And it was very interesting hearing, because you know the North Sea, Northern Arctic Sea route is now opening. Uh, and the Russians just bought shed loads of Finnish icebreakers because they're the world leader in their construction. An icebreaker is kind of projection of soft power. So the classic example is a Chinese one, which turned up off the Canadian coast when no one had seen it coming, and there was a kind of panic and scramble. But yeah, they, what they think is because... So with climate change, the, the first-year ice melts, and it doesn't lock in the second and third and old multi-year ice, which now comes out, and that stuff is hazardous. So it looks as though they will still need escorts. Although Maersk have just sent a ship through without escorts for the first time. Yeah, I'm just interested. Um, yeah, my husband worked in Helsinki for five years. Um, I didn't go. Um, but he used to say, oh, they have these really funny things in the hotel rooms, these special lights um, that people apparently need, oh, yeah. you know, because of the dark. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you, you, he's not a person that would ever be affected. Um, but um, 
obviously you said you, you, you suffer from that sort of thing. Yeah. Did you find that really difficult, being on an icebreaker in the dark? It was fine there because right. I was so excited by what I was doing. But when I came back, the walls certainly came in. And absolutely, seasonal affective disorder is a scientific fact, and a, and a box of light really helps. Yes, It's yes, kind of, of dead course. simple. And also the fins, you know, we had two saunas on our boat, um, and they right. don't go a day without one if they can avoid it, and that oh, clearly okay. makes a huge difference. Right. And for them, it's also a political, ethical thing, because they say, we're all the same to the fleas in the sauna. And, you know, there's, there's no hierarchy when you're all naked. Yeah, and they course. did, I said, so is that how we do it? And they were like, well, you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> but um, yes, uh, and in, in cupboards, you know, in hotels, they're, they're, they're there all the time. So that yeah. combination of the awareness of what it is. Right. Because the suicide rate is high in the northern countries. Yes, which but has, has to that be always to. been? I believe is it, so. Is it? Oh, right. I think so, yeah. Mm, and it's, yeah. I mean, there are lots, statistics are so difficult, aren't they? So if you look at it, mm. you get very high suicide rate in the Nordic countries, and as you come down to the bottom of Spain and Italy, it drops right off. Right. Now, is, and uh, the same internet usage is exactly the same. You think, so are these two related? <laughs> well, probably not. But at the same time, they probably feed into each other slightly, certainly for, for the young, I wonder. Um, and you can draw kind of massively inaccurate parallels. Um, but you have to think that things like family and the networked way in which the Southern Europeans work and the diet, because Finnish food is notoriously terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, although the reindeer is delicious and the berries are really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I ate Rudolph with absolute glee. <laughs> ate his shins. Um, but yeah, it, it would be hard. It would be hard. And I'm going to be much more scientific about it this time. I'm going to get the light box. I'm going to take vitamin D and take yeah, fish yeah, oil. All those things, I think, are you know, really It's important. basic stuff and it's not complicated. Um, but it's yeah. got to be done, I think. Thank you. You want to go and eat reindeer now? Horatio, thank you so much. I knew you'd be fantastic. You're great for having a coffee with, so I knew you'd be great. Um, I kind of wanted to ask the question, you, 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 um, two subjects really. One was how um, nature is changing the kind of uh, the Arctic with it melting and how that's kind of um, also changing the structure of sovereign and with all of these kind of quite powerful countries yeah. that are kind of looking and seeing about all of the uh, minerals and things and the oil that's up there. Yeah. I kind of, with spending time up there yourself, um, is, there, is there thoughts about that? Is there kind yeah. of, oh, Thank the you. Russians coming? Kind yeah, of really there. good question. Thank you, Stephen. Um, fascinating. So the book that you must all buy, and I'm sure you would anyway, will come out this coming year, and it's Robert McFarlane's next book, Underland. And it's going to be his silent spring, I think. And it's about absolutely all the stuff we've buried and hidden that's going to be that's going to come out of the ice. Um, and, you know, the seed bank and how they you know they got flooded recently and that sort of thing. I went to Svalbard uh, in the High Arctic, and that's fascinating because it's uh, an international zone. Forty signatories to the Svalbard Treaty. Anyone can go and set up as long as you don't endanger yourself or anybody else. And so it's the international young. And they built this kind of amazing uh, international society of everyone just getting on with it. And then there's huge nature right there, you know, and the possibility of the bears wandering in um, that give you uh, the feelings of possibility and scale and proportion. And at the same time, you know, you find a polar bear and there are 40 nations on skidoos all looking at it. And that feels weird. It's like the Serengeti syndrome all over again. Uh, but in terms of the dash uh, for gas and for the high Arctic, it's in full flow, obviously. And you would have seen the Russians sending a flag, that they, uh, the tiny flag underneath the uh, polar cap to, to claim their territory. And, and the model clearly should be Antarctica, which is this non-national zone, but that doesn't apply to the Arctic. And the, uh, very interesting, we were talking earlier on about Brexit and the nation state and all those things, but the more we can do without boundaries, the way Antarctica works clearly is the model, the way Svalbard works clearly is the model. Um, you know, it would be fine, Brexit would be fine if everybody would burn their passports, you know, let's not have them. My sole and hopeless project is the abolition of national boundaries. Uh, and it's what travel teaches you, is that we're all the damn same and that culture is not an excuse for a razor wire fence doesn't make sense uh, and so many migrants you know they, they get trapped because they because it, it's so hard to get here it's you can't politically go home so you in the old days Moroccan couldn't come to Europe and go home if you hadn't got Mercedes because he hadn't made it so then you get Moroccan sitting around Toulouse railway station miserable as sin uh, it doesn't work um, and places like the Arctic wildernesses really make that very clear is that they were always international zones and zones of cooperation uh, and zones of international teams and it would be a great pity if we all helmeted up in national colours and dashed for, for the high Arctic for what resources we have. Um, but it was heartening that the Russian ships um, were bringing wind turbines 
to Finland. You were like, and the Finns were kind of rescuing them, and you felt we were all working together on the same side. Um, and perhaps with the sufficient pressure from the climate, perhaps it might drive. So we were talking about how possibly the Brexit urges an urge, you know, to have something difficult to do again, to be up against the wall, as it were, uh, and bring the best out of ourselves, uh, you know. Uh, but perhaps the climate, it will either have the effect of driving us apart and we'll have resource wars, which of course the argument has been that we're already having, you know, over Syria, the water and things, or perhaps it will drive us together. And I'm an idealist. Thank you very much indeed, indeed, indeed. Cheers, it's been a pleasure. Marisha, thank you so much. I can't believe the question's dried up, but um, you... Oh, there is another question. There <laughs> Sorry, we go. madam. Really she didn't have a bottom chair. <laughs> what message will you give to your children? Uh, Aubrey's very interested in all this stuff. Um, so I ran a campaign to try and get um, plastic tap toys off the front of children's magazines. Because a lot of them, you know, the magazine is actually an excuse to massively overcharge for these crummy toys. And of course the parents buy them just because they thank God that your kid wants a magazine. Um, and it was, it was one tweet and one Facebook post. I'm a very lazy person. And the, the energy was enormous. Um, but Aubrey still wants this stuff. Uh, and so then I went home and I said, you know, we're, it's... It came up, there was a story about killer whales, and we've got Philip Hoare in, in the audience, and how they're being affected by this stuff. And I said, the plastic is killing the killer whales. The killer whales don't want us to do this anymore. And he gets it, completely gets it. Um, and I feel that's also something that the millennials feel very strongly, is that they are inherently green, but they feel that they lack the power and the resource to do much about it. Um, I have hope for my generation, so I'm 45. I don't, I, I don't think I've seen the best of them yet. Um, but we were the last generation to be absolutely privileged, really, in the 90s, pre-9-11. You know, we, we, we were the most richly um, resourced there's ever been and the least vexed, at least in the West. And so you look for dramatic action. Um, so telling the, the, the kids, I, it's not fair to say we messed it up and it's for you to solve. I teach non-fiction at Manchester and the way I think of it is giving these kids the tools effectively to weaponise them partly against the media, because if you look, there's a brilliant piece, Andrew Hagen's piece, about Grenville Tower. And the point was that the media, Channel 4, the Guardian, the people we looked to for truth, had got the whole story backwards, because it was easy, and they needed an easy villain, and that horrible, crummy narrative. And my father, who was a proper journalist, said, you know, the point about long-form non-fiction, which so many of us write now, is that it's the antidote to this slapdash, bullshit, clicking, bait-grabbing nonsense. So I think the thing I say to them is, you know, take your time to find out the real story. And the only resource that is to be most husbanded and used is, is time. But of course, with the pressure of climate change, that, that changes it. We're going to either see the best or the worst of humanity in, in the next 20 years, I should think. And starting from, you know, Trump and Brexit is quite good, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> how much worse can it get? Mm. Any more questions? Um, about Finnish society, the, all the really positives, mm. and then you just kind of threw in as you passed by about alcoholism and yeah. so on. It's too bad. I mean, it, it sounds so ideal, all the positive things. Yeah. And But is it the dark or the drink? I mean, uh, it's they've fascinating. They seem to have everything. Well, it, it, I think it starts in, in genetics. So, <laughs> so Finnish is proto-Uralic. So it's not related to Cyrillic and to Russian. They came from the Urals. And that's where the Finnish language comes from. And in that, also that gene pool, is they're not fantastic with alcohol, but that was made worse by a prohibition uh, during the mid-20th century, which Mannheim was very against. He used to go abroad the whole time. Um, and what had been happening was the Finns were brewing their own liquor off in the wilds, and that was fine. They were on top of it. But then with prohibition, that suddenly goes to the roof, and you know what happens. It's why the kids are all smoking skunk rather than you know, beautiful, soft Moroccan cannabis is because skunk is all they can get. And prohibition always means that you brew the strongest, you get the most volts for the least effort. Um, and then uh, it was the Winter Olympics. And there was a, th a thinking that lots of tourists were going to come and they were going to want something to drink. Uh, and the Finnish, they invent what they call the long drinks, which is basically kind of ethanol mixed with, um, with fruit juice. Um, and they're still very, very popular. So yeah, uh, it, it is an issue, um, but it's not like a catastrophic issue. Um, and they do have the healthcare system to, to cope with it. Um, and they, they're exploring, you know, they, they experimented with the citizen's wage, um, which they found really worked. 
How they cracked homelessness was fascinating. They're the only country in Western Europe which doesn't have a homeless crisis and where homelessness is decreasing, and they did it by giving the homeless permanent bases. Because half of the anxiety and misery is that you're going to be moved on, that nothing is for certain. So as soon as you give somebody 500 euro a month and somewhere to live, surprise, surprise, he or she goes out and gets a job, especially if you're not going to take either of those things away as a consequence. And people say, oh, it's because they've got a population of 5 million, you know, it's really easy in all these woods and resources. But actually, it's not. I mean, our resources are far greater and we're a far richer country. It's, it's all soluble. It just takes political will. Except for space. Space. Nobody's around. But then look at Britain. I mean, you can go across Britain for two hours and it's just empty fields, really. It's slightly off uh, your main topic, Drew's. but I only read The Guardian, so what is the story of Grenville Tower? Oh, the, the, the Tory council uh, were the enemy, and they basically burned these people and done nothing about it. And absolute nonsense. The council uh, had tried very hard um, to get the best deal for the residents of Grenville, and it was the management company who decided on the very cheap cladding. And worse than that was that when the thing catches fire and people die, and in come the world's media, who wasn't speaking, who wasn't putting out press releases, was the council. They didn't tell their story at all because they didn't have time and they didn't think it was actually very important. They were too busy trying to sort the thing out. And so Theresa May, Sajid Jabba, they all fell in behind the same narrative, which is these rich guys are baddies. And it was nonsense. It was, it was flat out wrong. And they gave the LRB, to its great credit, gave Andrew O'Hagan a year and some researchers. And he comes back with a piece and he's a you know, lefty. Absolutely turns the whole narrative on its head. And that's what journalism is about and what should be about and what nonfiction is about. And the, the Guardian bless them missed it. You know, they, they all missed it. And it's not just because of the lack of resources. It's also about not devoting your resources and giving them proper time to find out what's really going on. And the competition to have the worst headline. You know what they're like. Yeah. I mean, I trained as a tabloid hack, so I completely understand it. But it's not right. And it, it's, it's thrown our country really badly off, I think. Government by newspaper proprietor has been a disaster. I've got one last question before we let you go to the bookshop. Um, total change of subject, Horatio. A little bird tells me you've written a book about Bach. Yeah. And as a musician, I want to know about so I'm a total non-musician. I was asked by Radio 3 to walk across Germany in the footsteps of this 20-year-old man. And compared to Shakespeare, as I said to you earlier, we know a lot about Bach. You know, so uh, did you retrace his huge walk to Lübeck? We had a, a, a hatchback Mercedes that he didn't have. Um, <laughs> But that was only because the BBC's time was limited, you know. So, yeah, we did sections of his route over a week. Uh, so we went over the Brocken and, and we, we found things out. And my producer, I think, is probably the world's leading authority on this walk. And it changes his whole life. Because there's Buxtehude, this great radical old composer doing extraordinary things in Lübeck. And Johann Sebastian wants to find out about it. And he's had problems in Arnstadt. He's been shagging in the, in the, in the organ loft and rewriting the hymns because he's clearly very bored of playing the same old stuff. And they all like, go on, you, you take a walk you know, and come back in four weeks. And he's gone for four months. And it changes everything, I think. But he so, doesn't want to marry Buxtehude's daughter. No, he doesn't. Like, seems nobody wanted to marry Buxtehude's <laughs> daughter. <laughs> yeah, because you'd get the job, if only you would. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it changes everything. And it was like ghost hunting. And the strange thing was, as a total non-musician, by the time we got to the Marienkirche, you know, we went through the door, and I knew what he did. What you all do, you look up, you take off your hat, and you sit down and you breathe. And there you are, you've done it. And then you're like, right, where's the old guy? You know? And it was wonderful. It was really eerie, actually. So, yeah, there's a little book from Little Toller who don't have a marketing budget, so you'll never hear about it again, but it, it exists. Oh, and I'm determined <laughs> to get Horatio to the Penzance Festival next summer to talk about Bach. Right, so, please do thank Horatio You've been so Clare generous. Very That's much. Three rounds of applause. Thank you very much. <laughs>